This is a crowd podcast. The following contains descriptions of a graphic nature which some of you might find upsetting. If you want to check out another episode which isn't as graphic, try our episode about Prince, Bob Marley, or Mark Bolan. Who is Sid Vicious, really? The name is potent, a kind of manifesto in itself. You've got Sid, such a matey, English, working-class bloke sort of name, almost comically cheery, till it bumps up against Vicious. The most cutting and violent of adjectives implies something very nasty. His real name is Simon John Ritchie, but as a schoolboy he answers to John Beverley. That's his widowed mother's married surname. As for Sid Vicious, that's a nickname he always hated. It's given to him as a joke by his best friend John Lydon. You might know him as Johnny Rotten. He names Sid, get this, after a pet hamster. This is back when the two are just troublemaking teenagers in North London, messing about in the front room with the Lydon's family pet when the furry little rodent nips his future namesake's finger. Ow! Sid's vicious! complains the hapless schoolboy. That's how a legend is born. I called him after the softest, furriest, weediest thing on earth, is the way John Lydon remembers it, all too aware of the irony. Sid was always a good-looking boy, lean and wiry, with a jagged, spiky haircut. Looks like he's stuck his head in a dead hedgehog. He takes a good photo, with his torn t-shirts and lip-curling sneer. Put the name and the look together, and you have a cartoonish representation of punk, the rebel rock movement that shocked the world in the late 70s. For some people, Sid Vicious is punk, its ultimate poster boy. What did he ever do, except act like an oaf and die a miserable death? Sid was one of the Sex Pistols, sure, but he only joins after they've already rocked the British music scene, shocked the establishment and inspired a youth movement. Before that, Sid's just their number one fan, pogoing at their gigs. He only gets invited into the band because he's the friend of the lead singer, Johnny Rotten, and he looks the part. Sid's not on the Sex Pistols records because he could barely play the bass guitar. In fact, he was so bad, his bandmates used to turn his amp off during live shows. The Sex Pistols last for less than a year after Sid joins, breaking up in disarray. Sid himself is such a disruptive influence, a heroin addict, a clown, unleashing chaos wherever he goes. And after the Pistols, it all goes rapidly downhill. Sid scores one novelty hit bellowing a punk version of Sinatra's My Way, but Sid's way is full-blown junkie squalor in New York. It ends with him being arrested for the murder of his girlfriend, Nancy Spungen, in October 1978. Four months later, whilst out on bail, Sid overdoses on heroin. He's dead at 21 years old. Here's Johnny Rotten again. Sid wasn't the brightest spark. He was ill-equipped to deal with the pressures. That might be an understatement. The story of Sid Vicious is a sordid saga of sex, drugs, murder and suicide, and not much music at all. But his death somehow elevates him from an inadequate hanger-on to the greatest icon in punk rock history. It turns Sid into a romantic hero, Punk's very own incarnation of the live fast, die young and leave a beautiful corpse rock and roll myth. 
all because he had a snappy name, looked good in photos and burned out so spectacularly. Well, let's not lose sight of the man at his centre, a kind of unholy innocent who stumbled into infamy. He was a guy who never really stood a chance. Simon John Ritchie comes into the world on the 10th of May 1957. He's an only child, named after his dad, a soldier who plays no part in his life. He was raised by his mother, Anne Beverley, a drug-using dropout who became a hardcore heroin addict, often shooting up in front of her own child, sometimes sharing her stash with him. In fact, Sid's mother sometimes claims she supplies his last hit and pushed the plunger when he couldn't do it himself. She'd say Sid wanted to die, that he couldn't face prison and he'd made a pact with his beloved Nancy. According to Anne Beverley, she brought him into the world and she saw him out of it. It's just one of the things about Sid we'll never know for sure. Anne Beverley's dead too now, of a drug overdose, aged 58 in 1996. As family life goes, Sid's was vicious. Anne moves around a lot, from south-east London to Ibiza, to Bristol, to Tunbridge Wells, before settling in a high-rise council flat in Hackney, North London. Sid lives there till he's 16, when his mother throws him out on the street because their junky lifestyles are colliding. Sid's shooting up speed, and Mum's shooting heroin, and the two just don't mix. It's either you or me, and it's not going to be me, Anne Beverly tells her son. I've got to try and preserve myself, and you can just F off. I've got nowhere to go, that's what Sid says. I don't care, says his mum. Well, that's the heartwarming tale Sid's mum used to tell, anyway. After that, he lives in squats, or shares space in overcrowded flats, a chaotic life, fuelled by drugs and alcohol. What else is there to do? The friendship that came to define his life is made at Hackney Technical College in 1973, where he meets John Lydon. Two disaffected, bored, working-class North London boys, barely studying for O-levels. But there, the similarities end. Lydon's a waspish wit, a free-thinker, an articulate, politically aware, music-loving outsider. Sid's his yobbish follower, Loved by Leiden for his goofy humour, his instinct for troublemaking, his willingness to do anything, no matter how dangerous or stupid, just to fit in. Sid follows Leiden to Kingsway College in King's Cross, an arty establishment for difficult and excluded pupils. And he follows him down the King's Road to an odd little clothing establishment called Sex, where he and the two boys can indulge their passion for outrageous confrontational fashion. And that's where punk, as we know it, is born. The Sex Pistols are the creation of manager, clothes shop proprietor and self-styled art provocateur Malcolm McLaren. Malcolm's a worldly type, an intellectual mischief maker. In 1975, he sniffed around the arty New York garage band scene they're already calling punk rock, and he's got a vision for a band of oiks and urchins so sexy and offensive they'll be shock troops for a British rock revolution. He's already got the core band, recruited from oddball kids who hang around his fashion emporium. Steve Jones on guitar, Paul Cook on drums, Glenn Matlock on bass. 
What he needs is a frontman with something extra to make it more than just another bunch of pub rock wannabes. Then, into his shop walks John Lydon, 19 years old, with short, spiky green hair and a ripped and mutilated Pink Floyd T-shirt, to which he's added the words, I hate. Guitarist Steve Jones gives the weird kid his new name on account of his terrible teeth, Johnny Rotten. But from the moment McLaren recruits this firebrand, he effectively loses control of his pet project. The Sex Pistols become animated by Johnny Rotten's energy, anger and intelligence, concocting a new version of punk that is fiercely political. It's the perfect sound for a disaffected generation, so brutal and compelling. The Clash and the Damned quickly appear in their wake, along with the Buzzcocks, the Banshees, Generation X, Penetration, X-Ray Specs, the Adverts, Subway Sect and the Slits. Other bands cut their hair and remodel their sound, the Stranglers, the Jam, the Boomtown Rats. 1976 is a year zero moment in rock history, a great resetting, before and after the Sex Pistols. A new scene is taking shape, youth is in revolt, Britain's waking up. Where's Sid during all of this? He's in the audience, jumping up and down on the spot. This is an advertisement from BetterHelp Therapy Online. Hello, it's Tom Fordyce here. I'm one of the writers on Death of a Rockstar, and I do hope you're enjoying the series. I wanted to tell you about BetterHelp. Now, we all carry around different stresses in life, big and small. A lot of the people I wrote about for this series absolutely did. And as we know, if we keep those stresses bottled up, it can impact us negatively. That's where therapy can be great. Therapy isn't just for people who've experienced major trauma. It can help you understand the way your brain works and why you feel a particular way. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's all online, designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. All you need to do is fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a registered therapist. And you can switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. With over 1,000 therapists in the UK already, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Rockstar listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash rockstarpod. That's betterhelp.com slash rockstarpod. Bowie, Dylan, Marley, you've heard the names and maybe you've heard their songs, but what about the stories behind the records that make titans of music like these so universally loved and important? Join me, Josh Adam Myers, host of The 500, as each week I go through a different album from Rolling Stone Magazine's 500 Greatest Albums list from 2012 with an incredible lineup of comedians, actors, and musicians talking about how the music has impacted their lives. New episodes of The 500 come out every Wednesday. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Sid's not the first punk, but he's the first Sex Pistols fan. He's at all the gigs as they galvanise the London scene. You can find him on the dance floor rallying the troops. His one real claim to fame is inventing the pogo. That's just Sid's way of expressing exuberance, jumping up and down with antisocial energy colliding off anyone who gets in his way. And then there's the look. Early punk is inventive, arty, DIY fashion, 
Johnny Rotten wears second-hand D-mob suits held together with pins, or Teddy Boy drapes with bondage trousers, a look that changes week to week. Sid sees the Ramones, gets a leather jacket, ripped T-shirt and jeans. And that's it. The look he will stick with for the rest of his short life. He wears it well, so why not? It's the hair that makes it. After Johnny Rotten goes short and spiky, his pal Sid follows suit, but dyed jet black, with as many spikes as he can tease out. And in time, that becomes the punk uniform. Not the eccentric individualism of Johnny Rotten, but the rebel rock conformism of Sid Vicious. He's a face on the scene before he ever picks up a bass guitar, always handy for a violent outburst or a provocative quote. I've only been in love with a beer bottle and a mirror, that's Sid. I'm totally numb. I'm more of a robot than a person. That's from his first interview with a punk fanzine when he forms his own band, Flowers of Romance, who have gone down in punk history for never actually doing anything. There were a couple of rehearsals, and that's it. But that's when Sid writes his only song of note. Belson is a gas. A nasty, offensive piece of schoolboy humour about Nazi genocide. He makes his stage debut playing drums. He doesn't know how to play the drums and doesn't really care, so nobody remembers it. What is remembered is when Sid grows bored of watching the damned and hurls his pint at them. It smashes on a pillar, showering glass everywhere, a shard striking a girl dancing at the front. She loses the sight in one eye, blinded for life by an act of reckless, aggressive stupidity. Sid was never just his only victim. That's something worth bearing in mind. He hurt himself, but he hurt others too. On another occasion at the 100 Club, he takes a bicycle chain to NME rock journalist Nick Kent, slashing him across the head, drawing blood. At the speakeasy, he attacks music TV presenter Bob Harris, wielding a knife and making him fear for his life. A lot of old friends recall Sid as being sweet and sensitive and innocent, and not very smart, but he's not named Sid Sweet or Sid Innocent, Sid Sensitive, or Sid Not Very Smart. He's Sid Vicious. And the more he becomes a face on the scene, the more he tries to live up to his name. Sid was never an angel. He's a confused kid from a dysfunctional home. He boasts of torturing cats, and he's always had an instinct for provoking violence, especially when he's drunk or on drugs, which is increasingly often. He gets into a lot of fights, and usually comes off worse. After the glass-throwing incident at the 100 Club, Sid is dragged out by police, getting heavy bruises along the way. He spends a week in Ashford Romance Centre, and it's an experience that leaves a mark. He writes a letter to his mother. He says, One of the things I believe in since being slung in here is total personal freedom. But Sid's not talking about some utopian hippie ideal. Sid's talking about something much darker. Total freedom from responsibility for his own actions. He reads a book that's given to him by Vivian Westwood, designer of the Sex Pistols clothes and partner of Malcolm McLaren. The book is Helter Skelter, the story of murderous cult leader Charles Manson. Nothing is anything, anything is nothing. No sense makes sense. Sid didn't know bad from good, according to Vivian Westwood. He didn't know right from wrong most of the time, that boy. And that's exactly what Malcolm McLaren sees in Sid, 
when he recruits him to the Sex Pistols, an agent of chaos. The Sex Pistols are already a sensation, so controversial they can barely play a gig without police stopping them in their tracks. The filth and the fury scream the British tabloids. The band are under pressure, constantly squabbling, and somewhere in this maelstrom, a decision is made to kick out bassist Glenn Matlock, their most musically gifted member and key songwriter. They recruit Johnny's pal, Sid. For Malcolm McLaren, who never cared about the music, Sid is the perfect punk. A boy who believes in nothing, who hates everything, the living embodiment of anarchy. If Johnny Rotten represents the philosophical, intellectual, artistically engaged side of punk, his pal Sid is its yobbish shadow, channeling its lurking underbelly of sheer hate and thuggery for the sake of it. And as soon as he becomes a sex pistol, Sid plays that role to the full. In front of the press, he's a burping, farting, swearing oaf. There's a party at the A&M Record Company offices to introduce Sid to the world. And he drinks a bottle of Bacardi, starts a fight, loses a shoe, cuts his foot, smashes a window, smashes a toilet bowl, throws up on the carpet and falls asleep in the boss's chair. The record company cancelled the deal. But that's all right. Malcolm McLaren soon finds them another home. The Sex Pistols are all the rage, and in 1977, rage sells. On stage at their rare gigs, Sid plays topless, guitar slung low, cutting slogans into his skin, smearing himself in blood, playing one-note bass or no notes at all because he's too busy posing and starting fights with the crowd. Sid's nowhere to be heard on the Sex Pistols' debut album, Never Mind the Bollocks. Steve Jones plays bass in the studio because Sid's not up to the job. Luckily, he had hepatitis at the time. That's Jones's verdict on Sid's contribution to the Sex Pistols' recording sessions. But for all the jokes, Sid turns out to be a magnet for negativity, and he destroys the Sex Pistols, the band he loves. Sid plays his first gig with the Pistols at London's Screen on the Green, 21st of March, 1977. He looks good, and he concentrates on hitting the notes. He plays his last gig with the Pistols just 10 months later, at the Winterland Ballroom in San Francisco. Sid's covered in blood and scars. He's so out of it, Steve Jones screams at him he's playing the wrong songs in the wrong keys. It was Sid who broke up the band because of his habits, according to Jones. It was a ridiculous farce, according to Johnny Rotten. Sid was completely out of his brains, just a waste of space. The whole thing was a joke at that point. Sid's not even at the meeting when the Sex Pistols call it quits. He's in a squat in San Francisco, going blue from an overdose. There's only two things Sid cares about anymore. Heroin, and a New York groupie named Nancy Spongen. Sid and Nancy. The names fit together easily. Romanticised in books and movies as one of rock culture's great romances, icons of doomed youth, a punk rock Romeo and Juliet, in hell. As young love goes, Sid and Nancy are just about the worst thing ever to happen to each other. Nancy arrives in London in March 1977. Bleach blonde, 19 years old, she's smart, pushy and very abrasive. A loudmouth New York groupie, a sex worker with a history of schizophrenia and failed suicide attempts. 
She's been reading about the Sex Pistols and she wants to be where the action is. Within a week, she's hooked up with Sid, but not until she's been spurned by Johnny Rotten and had a quick romp with Steve Jones. Sid, for all his bravado, is shy around women and sexually inexperienced. Nancy is forward, sexy and bold. She's a domineering woman who completely takes over the life of a boy who's never been loved. They recognise some anarchic, non-conformist spirit in each other. No one else likes Nancy. It's pretty much impossible, even now, to find anyone with a kind word to say about her. Yet no one doubts that this is love, of a particularly poisonous kind. Nancy's already a heroin addict, and soon Sid is too. Up until Nancy's arrival, Sid's drugs of choice have been amphetamines and alcohol. The thing about heroin, it's an opiate, the ultimate painkiller, and for someone who's been in psychological pain all their lives, it can offer a terrible, seductive respite at an appalling cost to body, mind and soul. Sid joins the Sex Pistols and gets hooked on smack at the same time. It drives a wedge between Sid and his old ally, Johnny Rotten, who thinks heroin is for losers. Newfound fame feeds Sid's ego, turning him into an attention-seeking monster whilst protecting him from the consequences of his ever more outrageous actions. He spends his time fighting, self-harming, slagging off the world, all the while going through painful cycles of withdrawal and intoxication. And there's Nancy by his side, telling Sid he's the real star of the Sex Pistols. I'm the only one with a bit of anarchy left in me, is Sid's conclusion, when the pistols disintegrate around him. Malcolm McLaren tempts Sid and Nancy to Paris to record some vocals as the new frontman for a dumbed-down version of the Pistols and to film some scenes for a movie. It does not go well. Sid's so out of it, it takes two days to get a vocal for his punky version of My Way. In a Parisian hotel, McLaren tells Sid he's a screwed-up junkie with no future of any kind. Sid responds by beating McLaren up. After that, Sid's on his own. Struggling in London, fighting with friends and enemies alike, fighting with each other, Sid and Nancy head for New York, where they hole up in the sleazy Chelsea Hotel. Sid's got a hit single, global notoriety as an ex-pistol, and not much else. He tells anyone who asks that he'll be dead in six months. He plays a handful of shows with a pickup band made from members of The Clash, The Damned and The New York Dolls. Sid sings, every bit as amateurish and shambolic a frontman as he'd been as a bassist. But it keeps him in cash to pay his drug bills. In Times Square, Nancy buys him a hunting knife for his own protection, she says. Scoring drugs can be a dangerous business, and Sid's a natural victim frequently beaten and robbed by other dealers and users. And there it may be tempting to leave them, Sid and Nancy at the Chelsea Hotel, star-crossed lovers shooting smack and playing with knives, a life of sex and drugs and rock and roll, living the dream. And then, one morning, 12th of October 1978, Sid wakes from a heroin stupor to find blood everywhere. He follows a trail to the bathroom where Nancy lies dead, with Sid's knife plunged into her side. Sid is arrested, dragged out in front of the world's media, 
dazed and blinking in the camera lights as he's shoved into a police car to be driven away and charged with murder. There's conflicting stories about what happened that night. Sid's defenders claim it must have been a drug robbery gone wrong. Some suggest Nancy may have killed herself. Sid could never kill Nancy, they say. He loved her. But there are others who speak of whispered confessions, of a stupid push-and-pull argument gone wrong, the inevitable self-destruction of a pair of violent, codependent junkies. I did it because I'm a dirty dog, Sid tells the police, a confession he later attracts. On the 22nd of October, out on $50,000 of bail from Rikers Island Prison, Sid slashes his wrists with a broken light bulb. He's sent to Bellevue Hospital. He tries to throw himself out of a window, shouting, I want to be with my Nancy. Two months later, Sid's back in jail, after smashing a bottle into the head of Patty Smith's roadie brother, Todd, in a bar. Sid spends 55 days in Rikers Island, undergoing a painful enforced detox. On February 1st, 1979, bailed once again, he's released into the care of his heroin-addicted mother, Anne Beverly, who has joined him in New York. The very first night of his release, she gives Sid $100 to go out and score. Back in the apartment for a small party with friends, Sid shoots up and immediately ODs. His friends pull him through, but his mother won't take him to hospital for fear they'll send him back to jail, so they leave Sid to sleep it off. Sometime during the night, Sid shoots up again and dies of an overdose. It's a stupid death, yet grimly inevitable. An obvious conclusion to a life lived so recklessly, without guidance or restraint. It marks the end of punk rock in its first and fiercest incarnation. All the major players move on to other things, and Sid is left behind. A lost boy who never got the chance to grow up. But as that idea of punk becomes mythologised in pop culture, it's Sid Vicious who becomes its most potent archetype a symbol of fearless youth, a wild young man prepared to go all the way and damn the consequence. Two posthumous Sid Vicious singles are released, singing old rock and roll songs from McLaren's exploitational Sex Pistols movie, The Great Rock and Roll Swindle. The film features a scene in which Sid, in white dinner jacket, performs my way to an adoring crowd in an upmarket theatre. At the climax, he pulls out a gun to mow down audience members in the front row including an actress, playing his mother. Then Sid stomps off, throwing a two-fingered V-sign at the mayhem he's left behind. For too many second, third and fourth generation punks in their Sid Vicious t-shirts, it's an image that eclipses the complex, free-spirited, anti-establishment brilliance of his old friend Johnny Rotten, who's had to contend with all the problems of growing old disgracefully. Who didn't make the mistake of dying young? But there's really nothing heroic about the tragedy of Sid Vicious. A boy whose only talent turned out to be for self-destruction. I feel nothing but grief and sorrow and sadness for Sid, is John Lydon's verdict, looking back a lifetime later. Funny bloke, good company, but daft as a brush. He's dead, poor sod. You've been listening to Death of a Rockstar, 
If you've been affected by any of the issues we spoke about or are worried about someone you love, please go to crowdnetwork.co.uk slash helplines to find a list of people you can go to for help. This episode was written by Neil McCormick and performed by me, Emma Clark. It was edited by Phil Brown. For research, we used Vicious, The Art of Dying Young by Mike Petrus, England's Dreaming by John Savage, Anger is an Energy by John Lydon, The Filth and the Fury documentary directed by Julian Temple, In Search of Sid, BBC Radio 4 documentary produced by Jar Wobble, and Neil McCormick's own articles. The music we used is from our partners BMG Production Music. If you want to hear some Sid, and there isn't much, listen to the version of My Way we mentioned. We'll put it on the Death of a Rockstar playlist on Spotify. If you'd rather listen to another podcast, go and find our episode about Mark Bolan, the elfin prince of glam rock, a cosmic dancer who died at just 29. After that, listen to our episode about Amy Winehouse. And if you want another series, check out another crowd podcast called Death of a Sports Star. There you'll find episodes about Diego Maradona and heavyweight boxing champion Sonny Liston. We'll have another Rockstar episode next week. Thanks for listening. Crowd Network. A place where you belong. What's up, everybody? I am Finn McKenty, host of the Punk Rock NBA podcast, part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. My podcast is all about doing what you love for a living, and every week I sit down and talk to people who have done exactly that. For example, musicians like Tommy from Between the Buried Me, Matt from Periphery, Lil Lotus and Shinigami, among many others, photographers, artists, designers, YouTubers like Glenn Fricker and Sarah Dietschy, and I unpack exactly how they got to where they are today with the goal of helping you do the same. So if that sounds cool, you can listen and subscribe at SoundTalentMedia.com, and I'll see you there. I don't think it overstates things to say that the Beatles were the greatest gift to entertainment and culture of our time, a secular religion, if you will, with their universal appeal and demonstrable impact on people's lives. I'm Robert Rodriguez, host of Something About the Beatles. With every episode, I speak with historians, musicians, artists, and Beatle witnesses, all in the service of fresh insights into the most joyous cultural entity the world has ever known. I hope you'll join me and listen to Something About the Beatles, now on Evergreen, and wherever you get your podcasts. The number you have reached is 100.7 WMMS. It wasn't just a radio station, it was a lifestyle. Cleveland is a rock and roll city for sure. Get down! The Wrath of the Buzzer. WMMS Cleveland. The rise and fall of one of the most iconic radio stations in America. Profiles. The Wrath of the Buzzard. P R O H Files. Subscribe now wherever you get podcasts.